I wanted to uh, just share a little bit about my brother, uh, native of Chicago, Illinois, Reverend Pierre Keys II, is a proud HBCU alumnus of Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi. <laughs> it's where my graduated from. I used to make jokes about it. Now I can't. Uh, where he received his bachelor's de- of science degree in economics and accounting. Uh, while working in the financial industry for over 10 years, Reverend Keyes yielded to the call of God and accepted his call to ministry in 2011. Shortly thereafter, he attended Truett Seminary, Baylor University, to begin his pursuit of his Master's of Divinity. In 2018, Reverend Keyes completed his Master's of Divinity at McCormick Theological Seminary, a good, faithful Presbyterian seminary. Um, he is a 2016 Black Theology and Leadership Fellow of Princeton University. And in 2019, he was awarded the Joe R. Engel Preaching Fellowship at Princeton University. He shares a passion for preaching and social justice and as a community activist with the Chicago Community Bond Fund. He also works with incarcerated youth at the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center as a mentor and spiritual advisor. He currently serves as youth and young adult pastor at the historic Third Baptist Church of Chicago. And Pierre is also the proud husband of Kiana Keys and the proud dad of Jordan and Dallas. Um, and he's somebody that I consider a friend. So I'm excited uh, to hear him share the word of God with us today. Uh, thank you for coming with us. And can we just extend our hands uh, toward Reverend Keys? Say, God bless. God bless. Reverend Keys. Reverend Keys. God, bless. God bless. Reverend Keys. God bless. God bless. Reverend Keys. Can we just give him a round of applause and welcome? Good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Good, good, good. Um, I consider it a privilege, and I don't take it lightly, to uh, stand before you today upon the invitation of my friend and your pastor, um, Leslie Sanders. If you can give him a round of applause. He is someone that I know that has a heart for the kingdom of God, a heart for the ministry of reconciliation, and the heart for the city of Chicago and the surrounding suburbs. Him and I became friends through Facebook. We were friends that were chatting a lot, and we had a lot of friends in common. And that online relationship materialized itself. Um, so when he told me he was moving back to Chicago, I got uh, happy because uh, my wife doesn't let me out the house often. And, <laughs> and so I needed a friend uh, that I could hang out with. So um, he's not only a friend, he's also my frat brother, a um, uh, uh, gentleman of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated. Um, if you haven't heard that from the pulpit before, I'm sure this won't be the last time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to... Um, just recognize his beautiful wife and family uh, that, that is here. Um, uh, the burden of ministry that they share with the lead pastor is something that we don't speak of and not to take lightly. So just as we recognize your lead pastor, can we recognize his spouse and his family for standing and holding the mantle of service with him? Amen. Amen. Uh, I won't be before you long. Um, it's not a Baptist church, so I don't have a choice. 
So if you just bow with me for a quick word of prayer. Consecrate me, O God, with the power of your grace divine. And let my soul look up with steadfast hope. Let my will get lost in thine. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. God, my redeemer and my sustainer. Lord, right now, use me in a special way to bless your people. Holy Spirit, fall fresh on me and those that are here today. This is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Um, the uh, scripture has been read in your hearing. Thank you for that. Um, I want to do a cross text uh, found in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 11. And I'll read it in your hearing. Um, you guys are journaling through Corinthians. Text was read. It speaks of the folly of God, the folly of God, the the folly that doesn't make any sense to a world who's always trying to make sense of the unexplainable. And so now we want to look at um, the folly that Paul speaks about that he's trying to make sense to a Greek world that is filled with the philosophers of his age that have influenced modern thought today. He is in the intellectual hot tub of the world. Thought is what they do. Thinking is at the forefront of their activity, and he's challenged to speak a word of folly. Hear thee the word of the Lord, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and be found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. preparing this message today, I became abnormally frustrated because when I typically prepare a sermon, uh, when I'm reading the text, I'm looking for a way for the text to sound relevant to where I believe we're at in the world. Um, I'm looking for a way to relate the text in a practical manner that resonates with the congregation. Uh, In the Baptist tradition, we call that uh, looking for the shout. Uh, It's when you find meaning in the passage and have said the right way, it will garner a response from the people to give the preacher the affirmation that he is preaching a word or she is preaching a word that they can identify with. When preparing for a passage, I usually have my highlighter and 
I'm highlighting key words and phrases in the passage. And on the margins, I'll write, thou preach. I have become accustomed to looking for the shout or looking for things that were preached in a text. Because if they shout, if they respond to what I'm preaching, I get instant affirmation that I've said something that you understand. That's all it is. It's me looking for a place in Scripture so that you and I can understand what the text is saying. And all I'm looking for is something to wrap my head around because if I can understand it, hopefully you can understand it. Um, Because the goal is for you to understand what thus saith the Lord. The goal is for you to wrap your mind around the text and determine how this text relates to your life and live it out. So that's how I usually prepare for my sermons. I'm always looking for the shout and what we're preaching the text. But this go around, I could not find the shout. I couldn't find what we preach because the only big idea gleaming from this scripture is that Christ is crucified. Because unlike elsewhere in his epistles, Paul isn't using poetic methods of prose or rhetorical techniques of persuasion to get his point across. He's simply saying that I'm only here to preach about Christ and Christ crucified. Are y'all following me? And I had an issue with that because I said, how can I tell this church that this scripture in our hearing is about Christ and only about Christ and his crucifixion? How can that add to their faith? How can me preaching Christ and his crucifixion encourage this church on how to live on Monday morning? They already know that Christ died. They know about the terror on Friday that nailed Jesus to an old rugged cross. They know that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised for our peace. Lord, why would you want me to tell them something they already know. Then I got a fresh glimpse and insight. Heard God say, it's not about what they know, but what they forgot. It's not about what they know, but what they no longer keep at the focal point of their witness. And that's the reality that Jesus died. Church, what I'm trying to say is that over time, We've allowed philosophical rationale, systems of theology, and rhetorical methods of persuasion to decenter the main thing. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And keep this at the center of our witness. And that that Jesus died. I hear you. I can hear you thinking. You're saying, Reverend Keys. Thanks for the reminder, but what does preaching about Christ's death have to do with my discipleship? Well, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) The reason why we need to keep Christ crucified at the center of our discipleship is because it informs our Christianity, it decenters the self, and it changes the world. I want to suggest to you this morning that the reason that we've shied away for proclaiming Christ's crucifixion 
in our witness is because it don't make no sense. In a world where we're smarter, more advanced, in a world where Christianity cannot claim itself as the dominant belief system in society, in a world full of skepticism, and a country that lives on the edge of post-Christianum, preaching about a dead man that died centuries ago just don't make no sense. No one is going to believe that a man who was not only killed, but he was raised from the dead. That sounds foolish. This talk seems foolish, and, and you're right. It does, but can I help us understand that in this foolishness is the wisdom of God, the power of God, and it has the ability to save the world. What is this folly that Paul speaks about? First, we need to understand what Paul is getting at, and it's not only that Jesus was crucified, but that he is the crucified Savior. I'm not playing semantics. I promise you it makes sense in the in a minute. The main thing is not just what he's done in the past, but how he stands with us in the present. And he stands with us in the present as cruciform. Can the church say cruciform? Cruciform or cruciformity is God's innate disposition toward us. It's his nature. It is the hermeneutical lens of understanding who God is. It is the means of grace of how God is known. Cruciform is God's orientation towards humanity. Um, This cruciform God um, is his orientation to humanity. And this, what I want to suggest, is the folly or God's foolishness. Philippians 2, 6, and 11 is a text that describes the kenosis of Christ. That is the self-emptying of Christ. Uh, Verse 6 says, although he was in the form of God. Michael Gorman, a New Testament scholar, says that um, a better word is not although he was in the form of God, but because he was in the form of God. He says that that's a better way of saying it because uh, the cross reveals uh, who God is. Let me say it this way. The cross is not simply a view of Jesus, but it's a way of understanding God. Let me say that again. The cross is a way of not simply viewing Jesus, but a way of understanding God. Conventional ways of understanding God, or what we call classical theism, paints God as an imperial divinity. Uh, This guy, you heard it before, he sits high and he what? Looks low. This God doesn't stand with his people, but like an earthly emperor, he stands above his people. This God is more like the pharaohs and Caesars of the world that require their subjects to worship at their feet, not out of love, but out of fear. Uh, This type of God uh, coerces his subjects into allegiance. He burdens them into bondage by keeping them economically disadvantaged. They won't leave their throne of privilege. They won't birth their sons in an animal feeding trough. They won't eat and drink with the disadvantage. They won't die on a cross because gods don't die. 
let alone for their enemies. This was the default understanding of how the ancient world saw God. And Paul says this, because he was in the form of God, he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of his divine status. But when the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient all the way to death on the cross. And the people around Corinth holler, folly! Messiahs don't die let alone on a cross. You have to remember back up to chapter 1, Paul says it's a stumbling block for the Jews. It's a stumbling block because in 2 Samuel, God makes a promise, a Davidic promise. He creates a covenant with with, uh, David's uh, family and says that uh, this throne shall last forever. Then if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that anybody who dies on the cross is cursed. And so you mean to tell me that you want me to worship a God that died, but he's still a savior, and he died on the cross. That's, that, that, that's folly. Now, I can hear you thinking, you're saying, Mr. Preacher, what does is, what is this text have to do with me and my discipleship? And I'm glad you asked. This text is not simply a view of Jesus, but as I said a moment ago, it's a way of understanding God. The reason why our discipleship has become ineffective is because we have depicted an imperial view of God that looks less like Jesus and more like a God who aligns himself with empire. God who has elected some to die and some to eternal life before they were born. God who hates the immigrant but loves the citizen. This is, this is this imperial view of God, a God that panders to our political preferences. That's the imperial God. But because Jesus the Messiah was in the form of God, he acted out of character. When I was growing up, anytime I acted out of character, my grandma would look at me and say, stop acting a fool. Jesus acts out of character. He acted foolishly and broke up our conventional understanding of God, a God that would rather die for his enemies than kill his enemies, that would rather wash the feet of his followers than them wash his feet, a God who would rather forgive his enemies than seek revenge. One of my favorite movies is a uh, movie called Coming to America. If, if you got kids under the age of 15, don't have them watch this movie. I, I don't want no calls from your pastor. Coming to America is a movie, comedic movie by Eddie Murphy, and he's the prince uh, of this fictional kingdom called Zumunda. And uh, he, he, he lives in an Eastern culture where the family picks his bride. Well, Hakeem, which is his name, uh, decides to buck the system. And he says, Dad, I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to pick my bride. I, I, I want to find her myself. 
I don't want anyone to just follow me simply because I'm the prince and one day I'll be a king. I don't want no one to just follow me and do what I say out of fear and not out of love. So, Dad, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find myself a queen. And this is what he does. Hakeem, he takes off his royal clothes and he becomes a peasant in the um, ghettos of Brooklyn, New York. No one knows that Hakeem is a prince. He dresses as a regular man wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a starter jacket. He, no one knows he's a prince. He, he gets a job at the fictional McDowell's. He, 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 he works from, he moves up from mopping floors to cooking fries. No one knows that he's a prince, but he, his, his servant Simi drops a dime on him and tells everyone that he is a prince. And, the, and his love interest in the film can't believe it. Her heart is broken because he presents himself differently than what he was. And, and they have this moment on the train where she says that there's no way I can be in love with the king. I thought you were a peasant. And he says, from this moment on, I renounce my throne. That's what Jesus does in Philippians 2, verse 5 and 11. He renounces his throne. He gives up the privilege of deity. He forsakes the comfort of heaven to get in the confines of earth, not as a mission to rescue us, but a mission to transform us. Not so we can just celebrate him, but for him to reveal the heart of God. That's the foolishness of God. Uh, he, he renounces his throne. It's the counterintuitive reality. God presents himself through Jesus Christ. This is part and parcel of the folly Paul is speaking of. But not only does Paul go around Corinth uh, talking about the foolishness of God, he invites us to be foolish. Back up to verse 5. It says, let the same mind be in you. That was in Christ Jesus. Paul says this act of self-emptying isn't just for God, but it's for you too. Paul invites us to join him on this participatory foolishness of living a cruciform life, a life oriented around self-sacrifice, a life that is liberated by the Spirit to live for others rather than ourselves, a life of status renouncing, Privilege forsaking. Humiliation is not just for Christ, but for us too. We have a problem with this. Because no one wants to renounce any privilege. You ain't got to say amen, I'm talking for myself. No one wants to renounce any privilege. No one wants to forsake the comforts of life for the sake of others. Sure, we'll give to charity, we'll volunteer here and there on the weekends, we'll help out the bridge, we'll write out a check, but no one with privilege wants to denounce their status. And just as we were taken back by a portrait of God who stands outside of conventional methods of power, we also are hesitant to emulate this self-emptying act ourselves because it too stands opposite of conventional acts 
of power. I'll confess in Christ, but I'm going to keep this power. I'll tie, but I'm going to keep this privilege. I'll speak about reconciliation, but I won't speak of how the country continues to oppress black people in Chicago. I'll talk about unity, but I won't say anything about how Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. I'm not giving up no power. Now, that's foolish. But Paul says in Romans 6, 5 that we cannot experience the power of his resurrection unless we experience his death, the dying of self. He's saying no cross, no crown. Uh, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's foolish talk. That's crazy and foolish talk. No cross, no crown. Die to self. You, you want to go high, you got to come low. You want a crown, carry a cross. You want favor, you got to give up some stuff. That's foolish talk. That is cross talk. You heard, you've heard it before. Turn the other cheek and don't hit back. Cross talk. You got all the problems in the world. Dial up your friends to tell her or him about your problems. You get off the phone feeling worse than what you did before you called them. But cross talk says that take your burdens to the Lord and leave them there. It, it don't make no sense. You in debt up to here. Your accountant says, now, in order to get out of debt, you're going to have to pay this off, pay this this way. And you say, I'm a Christian. I want to tie. I want to give offering uh, to my church. And the accountant says, you can't afford it to do that, but you do it anyway because you believe if you give to God, he'll open up the windows of heaven and give you more than you have room to receive. Crosstalk. It don't make no sense. Somebody has done you wrong. Now, this one's for me. Somebody done you wrong, gossiping behind your back, lied on you, and you get every right in the world to seek revenge on the people that done you wrong. Crosstalk says, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you. It don't make no sense. It's foolish. But you need, I need to have this mind that is in Christ Jesus. It's foolish. And Paul has this message all across Corinth, and everybody is saying to him, I'm nobody's fool. And Paul says, well, you get that right. Because in the power of this foolish talk that I speak, lives can be transformed. Worlds can be changed. Minds can be conformed. Y'all still not getting this. I I, 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 I tend to uh, write my sermons or study while I'm watching TV in my little office. Confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. <laughs> and, and I'm watching TV, and, and I, uh, I set my DVR on, on Sundays uh, to, to catch my shows. Uh, on Sundays, I'm going to watch my show. I'm going to watch Power at 9. Uh, I'm going to watch uh, Real Housewives of Atlanta at 8. 
and uh, and I'm gonna watch um, Billions. That, that's that's I'm a, I'm, I'm gonna watch that um, on Sundays. Uh, so I set it so it's programmed throughout the week. Um, but one day I, I, I go to program it to put my things, my shows into the DVR, and it says that my database was full. It says my database is full. I cannot put anything in there and uh, because it was full. And so what was on mine was Pepper Pig and what was, uh, This Is Us, uh, Gray's Anatomy. That's our show. Okay. And, and, and Family Guy. And, 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 and it was full or whatever. So, so what, what I had to do, I had to uh, hit the little orange button in the middle, select, and I had to delete uh, what was in the program to put what I needed in the program. Y'all still not getting this. My database is full. I cannot get what I need in the program to feed my soul. So I have to delete what's in the program to get what I want in the program. This is what God wants to do. He wants to reprogram you. He wants to get the junk and filth out your mind, the stuff that's keeping you from peace, the stuff that is keeping you from intimacy from him, the stuff that is keeping you from loving your neighbor. And he says, take it out and let me reprogram you. Let this mind in Christ be in Christ Jesus. I'm almost done. Let me just leave you with this. Not only is God self-emptying, his incarnation, his humiliation, an act of God's foolish love for us, not only does God invite us to share in his foolishness, his cruciformity, but there's fruitfulness in folly. I had to, took a lot of courage to say that because that didn't make no sense. There's fruitfulness in folly. We, much like the ancient world, often think of God as an imperial deity, like the pharaohs of the world. But Pharaoh is no longer here. There aren't as many books about pharaohs these days. In fact, all we know more about the pharaohs of this world is their title, but not their name. We've had our Caesars of the world, but there aren't any schools named after any Caesar. Not any hospitals named after Caesar. Uh, no one knows their name. We just know their titles. Uh, the pharaohs and the Caesars, they were deified and worshipped. They were imperial gods. They were, they were celebrated their life, seen as gods and worshipped. But none of that produced anything that still stands today. But the one who emptied himself, who became like us and knows suffering just like us, the one who voluntarily forsook himself and voluntarily humiliated himself is now exalted and gave him a name that is above every name. He preached the gospel of folly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's folly. It's folly in a world where war is seen as strength and peace is seen as weakness. It's folly in a world where the privileged claim persecution because voices from the margins are more vocal than they've been before. It's folly, but it's fruitful.
In fact, God has done more in folly than we've done in our wisdom and strength. Remember, uh, I got any Bible readers in here? There's a few. Okay. You, you, uh, one, one of my favorite Bible stories is when Jehoshaphat prayed to God to protect him and the Israelites from, uh, uh, from their enemies. Their enemies are coming down the mountain and Jehoshaphat is praying and, and Jehoshaphat is saying, God, give us the battle. And so Jehoshaphat is thinking, I'm going to need an army and some weapons. And God tells him, he said, man, assemble a choir. <laughs> he says, put the choir in front of the soldiers. And when the enemy comes, I want you to start singing, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And the Bible says that the enemy started to fight each other and Israel didn't lift a sword in the battle. They had a sword, but he gave them a song. It was folly, but it was fruitful. God told Abraham, leave your town. Abraham says, where? He says, I'll tell you when you get there. He leaves his town and he doesn't know the destination, but Abraham is blessed with descendants that he can't even count. It was folly, but it was fruitful. Noah, build me an ark. Why? It's not raining. He says, don't worry about that. I'm going to send rain. And Noah is building this ark, and his neighbors are, are teasing him. Man, why are you bringing the ark? You don't live by a bottle of water, a body of water, and neither is it flooded. Why are you building? And the flood comes, and Noah is able to rescue his family and help reset the creation and humanity. It was folly, but it was fruitful. I need to come a little closer. You remember in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, they were marching for voting rights, and uh, they were turned back. And so um, Dr. King and, and Hosea Anderson, they say, um, what we're going to do, we're going to march over to Edmund Pettus Bridge to the Montgomery State Capitol and demand our votes. And the people said, well, there are armed policemen over there with batons and riot gear and with guns, and they said, okay, yeah, yeah. When they hit you, don't swing back. He said, don't swing back, but just keep walking. And, 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 and they went over that bridge, and, and, and they were beating, and they were struck with batons, and some people were hurt. Even one person was killed, and they could not fight back. But five months later, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed. It was folly, but it was fruitful. One Friday, Jesus Christ took up a cross and he has to hang on to a promise that he got a long time ago. He's never seen nobody come front back from a crucifixion, but he says, Lord, not my will, but your will. It was folly. But one Sunday morning, he gets up with all power in his hands. It was fruitful. Amen.